Joyful to be with you today. In the name of our Lord, I'm excited about our beginning into the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you grab your Bibles and turn with me there, uh, we have some new few Bibles there in the back. If you need a Bible, would like to to study with us, feel free to grab one of those. If you if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to make that yours. Be able to study the Word of God. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6 this morning as we jump into uh, this great chapter, um, the word of our Lord. Jesus says, John 15, verse 1 through 6, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Word of our Lord, that's as far as we'll get this morning. I'm very excited about this text. It's one that has often blessed me, ministered to me, shaped the theology and understanding of of our Lord and what it means to be in Christ. As you can see in your little note outline this morning, there's there's many subsections to today's sermon, and so lots to cover. I want to dig right in. Starting with the opening words of Jesus here in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. The word true is found in, in several other descriptions of our Lord in John's Gospel and elsewhere. But looking to John's Gospel and what we've seen so far, a few examples of this we see in chapter 1, verse 9. He is the true light. Chapter 6, verse 32, He is the true bread. The use of the adjective true in these verses help us to determine Jesus' completeness. It's not so much as he is in opposition to that which is false. Bread is still real, is still good for something. It's not fake. It's not not real. But Jesus is complete for us. Christ is perfect, essential, and the enduring reality of which other things were but faint reflections. These were but types and shadows of the true thing, which is Christ. In relationship to these verses, Christ is the true light in contrast from his forerunner, John the Baptist, who was but a lamp or a light bearer. 
Christ is the true bread in contrast to the manna which the fathers in the wilderness had but then died. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, it is not to be a flippant metaphor for the disciples, but have a much deeper meaning of his completeness of what he brings. The description of a vine we have seen throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament has many places where the, the God is, is speaking of Israel as the vine. Jeremiah 2, 21 is one of these places. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Israel is a type who has proven to be a failure. There are many verses we could look at. Perhaps the most important Old Testament passage Describing the vine, we see in Psalm chapter 80, speaking of both the themes of the vine and the Son of Man, Psalm 80, verses 7 and 8 and 14 through 17, Restore us, O God Almighty, make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, Israel. You drove out the nations and planted it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on on the man at your right hand, the son of man, you have raised up for yourself. These passages speak of Israel as a forerunner vine, but Israel was an insufficient vine, thereby pointing us and blessing us by seeing our need for the true vine, Jesus Christ. The failure, the type, is Israel. Christ, the anti-type, the true vine fulfills all the heavenly promises. We saw this same reality expressed in John 10 when we engaged the chapter on the shepherd and the sheep, saying, I am the good shepherd. This was again a a contrast, a great contrast to the false shepherds, the failed shepherds of Israel of old that we read, you can read about in Ezekiel 34. Descriptive, outlay of how they served themselves and failed utterly, ultimately pointing to the need for a good shepherd, lasting shepherd, faithful and true shepherd, Jesus Christ. The second part of the metaphor used by our Lord is to show the importance of the vine. So we see the emphasis on true and then of the importance of the vine. Importance still being sufficient as the vine is to the branch the vine to the branch is everything see how important jesus is without the vine there is no life for the branch a branch separated from the vine is what it is dead it's a stick 
It cannot grow. It cannot mature. It cannot thrive. It cannot live. It cannot produce fruit by itself or attach to anything else. If it tries to attach itself to the fence, it goes nowhere. To the rock, it does nothing. To the dirt, it does not produce life. The vine, then, is life to the branches. Spiritual and eternal life, in this case. This is the the last of the famous I am statements of Jesus that we've seen all throughout John's Gospel, all of which implore different metaphors to essentially make the same point. It's a point that Jesus is saying again and again, and the purpose of the gospel, purpose of his testimony, his teaching, I am the Messiah, I am the eternal Son of God. Believe in me and have everlasting life. True life, lasting life, spiritual life is only found in Jesus. Without him, you are and remain dead and eternally hopeless. So let me remind you of these that Jesus has said. The first we saw in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Then in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And then in John 10, 7, I am the door for the sheep to find pasture. And then in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. And then in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Later in John's letters, he'll write chapter 5 of the first letter, verse 12, John will say, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus has not come to fulfill one aspect of life. We have to be so careful not to turn him as the means to something else, thinking that if I just add Jesus, my life will be better. He is life. have no spiritual life without Christ. He's the one mankind has been waiting for from the beginning, from the fall, from the reality of our spiritual state of dead and separated from that which is life, our eternal God. He is the one you have been waiting for, whether you know it or not. I pray you see the fullness of this sooner than later. Repent and believe. Looking at the rest of the verse, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. In the Old Testament, the Father is represented as the proprietor of the vine, but here he's called the husbandman, the cultivator, the one who cares for the vine. The love the Father has for the Son is like no other. We've seen this already in powerful ways. What good news it is that we have a Father in heaven who has the same love for the Son He has for us, branches of the vine. 
We see this in the next verses. Looking at the first part of verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This verse, in its plain English reading, has been appealed to by Arminians in proof of their view that it is possible for the saved to lose their salvation, to perish. This cannot be true, as that interpretation would would flatly contradict the explicit and, and consistent positive declarations found throughout the words of Christ to remind you of just a few that we've seen in John alone. John 4.14 Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6.37-40 Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So then how how are these true branches taken away? Reading on, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father doesn't take away true branches. One more look at John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the Armenian interpretation of this passage cannot be true. Instead, we ha- what we have here is another clarity that is very much in line with the rest of the Gospel of John by which Jesus is pointing out superficial faith. Many along the way who have followed Jesus, who were part of his crowd, even in the inner circle, we see one of his very own disciples prove a lack of real lasting fruit and faithfulness, never having truly trusted Jesus with, with their life. If you remember the huge exodus we witnessed in the end of chapter 6, people who once followed Jesus for a length of time, John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples, committed followers, turned back and no longer walked with him. Evidence of a superficial faith, a church participation, a following of Jesus that is the actions of the will of man, and not the evidence of true saving faith by which a person is reborn and truly saved, set free, secure in the eternal hand of the Father. What they wanted in the end proved itself out. They wanted something that Jesus could get them and not Jesus. They wanted to add Jesus to their lives but did not want to die to self to serve him. Some will go so far in this superficial faith when confronted with the true gospel, when confronted with the true reality of what it is to die to self, to live to Christ, they will abandon a church that preaches such a 
confident word of God to find a church that will itch their ears, tell them what they want to hear, that in their sin or in their lack of whatever, that they're still okay. It's it's biblically unacceptable. It's an atrocity that that even happens. Later in John's first letter again, chapter 2, John will write these things about these who looked like they were of us, very clearly, one of the clearest places we see this mentioned, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. These are the family that they ate with, they served with, they grew with. And yet their lack of endurance, their lack of perseverance of faith and fruit proved to have never been one of us. We see here clarity that they did not lose their salvation, they never had it. Jesus speaks to this very clearly in Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. They were not truly saved. They only looked like they were. And what is their outcome? They are cast away, taken away, John 15, verse 2, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You can put on the facade, you can look like you're a part of the church, part of the body of Christ, and in the end prove to not really be in Christ. Later in John 15, 8, we'll see next week, Jesus will say the opposite of this. When he says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That evidence of fruit, of real life change, of the work of God in your life, is an evidence of real salvation. It's an outward sign. Only God knows the heart. So these are evidences, they're they're showings of what has happened in the heart. That said, look at the next part of the verse and see how the Father's love and faithfulness tends to those who prove to be in Christ. They bear true and lasting fruit. John 15, 2, part B, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The word prune here is the Greek, in the Greek, is not the word to mean cut off completely. It it actually means to clean up. The Greek word here means to clean. To cleanse from filthy impurity. You can prune a branch completely off, or you can prune a branch to be rid of its unneeded growth and impurities. Presence of whatever you don't want there. This is the pruning of the vine dresser and the way you make the vine and the branch more fruitful. I've experienced this firsthand. My, my dad, after 30 years as an Orange County fire captain, 
retired, and my mom and dad bought a place up near Shaver Lake with many, many apple trees on it up in the mountains. Beautiful place. Remote, just the way my dad likes it. Told me again the other day, don't ever take me off this mountain. Hundreds of apple trees take a lot of work. We had to do this by pruning and thinning the branches. Why? Not because it was fun, first of all. As my brother will clearly attest, I was already married out of the home. My sister was there too, but you guys know Matt well, and he was still a teenager in high school at the time. And so while many of you were taking out the trash or maybe washing the car, Matt had to prune many apple tree branches. We prune those trees so that the trees would produce the maximum and healthiest fruit possible. It was caring to trim, to remove the clutter and the unneeded growth, so that in the next season, those apples, literally some of the best I've ever eaten to date, would grow in their full. This is a good thing. It's a loving thing that the Father does this to us. Hebrews 12 speaks of the loving but hard act of the Father of Heaven in this way. Hebrews 12, just one chapter short of what I read this morning for our Lord's Supper, verse 5 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and, and, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Look at verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I know this firsthand. You know, we don't like to be disciplined. We don't. But I've, I've counseled with youth. I've sat in very trusted space far away from mom and dad's where very rebellious children will admit to me the opposite of what you think they would say. They've admitted, I want my dad to discipline me, thereby proving that he loves me. Dads would be hand off, would just pay for things for their kids, give them whatever they want. Even a young child can see through the facade they, they see the way God has designed it, that it is loving to discipline your children. Okay. 
parents, you ask them later, they won't admit to that. That was an off-the-record thing that I'm sharing with you. It yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. It is in love the Father prunes us. It is a good sign when the Father is pruning us. It is a, the joyful journey Pastor Rob spoke of this last few days ago at midweek gathering. The reproof and sanctification process, while painful in the moment, often extremely hard, is some of the very best work that God does in our life. He was able to admit, looking back over some of that, as some of his favorite and most thankful parts of his life. The, produce, the production of good and lasting fruit is far better than anything else that we might have considered before in sin when we were unpruned. And what's great is that pruning continues until we die, until we're glorified. So we never outgrow it. Don't let yourself just focus on the pain or on the struggle of being pruned, but the good news and the love of the Father to tend to us. I I love to see this in you, the church family. There is a growing evidence among you to not run away, but to lean in. Although it's hard, Many a modern church attender have come to pruning moments or moments of discipline or accountability and they bolt, they run, they want nothing to do with it. They stop answering the phone, they disappear, tell you off. But oh, the joy it is as one of your shepherds to see many of you leaning in in this season to say, no, no, love me enough to not let me walk to hold me accountable that the discipline of the Lord will be active in my life. Do you see, church, the tender care of the vine dresser, the Father? You see His watchfulness, that nothing escapes His eye, just as the gardener notices the daily condition of every branch of the vine, watering, training, pruning, so the divine husbandman the vine dresser is constantly tending to the need and welfare of those who are joined to Christ. Notice too, no true branch is allowed to become unfruitful. Fruitfulness will be a marker of your salvation. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You will not turn to nothing or be wasted. Now, Jesus has pointed out that those who look to be in him, but proved by their lack of fruit to not be, he speaks of those also who do produce fruit, will be primed by the Father, pruned by the Father, so that they can be mature and produce more fruit. To solidify where the disciples before him are of these two, What does he say next? Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. The word Jesus brings has already been the vehicle used by the Holy Spirit to bring saving faith and regeneration in the eleven. 
This is the way 1 Peter 1.23 talks about that. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Already you are clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you. He's saying you will not be taken away or cast away for you are clean. You are already saved and set free. Now you might go, then why does he speak of pruning if already clean? That cleaning, that word pruning there is cleaning. Why is that needed then if I'm already clean? Church, it's no different than exactly what Jesus said to the disciples in at the Last Supper when he was washing their feet. Do you remember what he said? John 13 verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He is completely clean. And you are clean. Remember Peter and his zealousness, no Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, filthy, nasty, that's vile. Now, if I don't do this, then you won't have a part of me. Then Peter just, you know, always, always to the top. Then wash my whole body. No, you don't need to have your body washed. You are clean. Speaking of a spiritual condition. But there is a cleaning, a sanctification that continues until death and glorification. That's the symbolism of the washing of the feet. That grime, that dirt, that sin that we still struggle with, that we still take on on the road. We need to repent of it and be mature to not have it in our lives. Let us turn now to the core instruction of Jesus' words here for the branches. Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word we most often see in chapter 15 is the word abide. The first thing I want you to realize is that abiding is always in relationship to divine fellowship. Only those who have born, been born again are capable of having fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are capable of abiding. So it's good news, even when he just says, abide in me. That's an evidence of who you are. And and so let me point out a clarity here that to be in Christ and to abide in Him are two different things. A person must truly be in Christ before he can abide in Christ. The former respects a union affected by the sovereignty and saving power of God which can neither be dissolved nor suspended. Believers are never exhorted to be in Christ. Why? Because that's the Lord's work to graft us into Christ, to be in Christ. But Christians, those truly in Christ, are frequently exhorted to abide in Christ. See the difference. Let's flesh out to abide. To abide is to continue, to dwell, to remain, hold fast. To abide is to stay plugged into the source of life, which is Christ himself. 
We do not thrive in Christian life by turning from him, trying to unplug from him. It is in those seasons that we drift, we wander, we we lust, we slow down, we, we turn to selfishness, we savor sin instead of Christ. To, to abide is to remain constantly in Christ, pondering His Word, acting for His glory and will, living out who He is in you. I really want you to see this today and next week. We, we are desperate every moment for Christ to abide to not ever let your faith become compartmentalized. I've done my faith thing today, Sunday morning church, that's done. Now I turn to live the rest of my day, the rest of my week, kind of oblivious, kind of checked out from Jesus. No, every moment of our living in Christ is an abiding. We want to abide in Him. So even as I say that, my prayer for in leading up to today's sermon, has been that we all would get this in a deeper way. This would be one of the beautiful big gifts of this text for us, that we would wake up to just how often we are not abiding, but compartmentalizing our faith. A weak illustration that I'll effort to give, Jesus is not just a defibrillator you know what that is that's the clear shock make the heart do its thing again that jump starts your heart to life and then we're done and we go on living we've been awakened man i hope you don't see jesus as a defibrillator but much more as a pacemaker by which, for those of you who are utterly dependent or ever will be on a pacemaker, you would never think about, you know what, today, just take it out. Just, just kind of do my thing. Utterly dependent in every way, every moment on that pacemaker. That's, that's a Josh Kirstein metaphor illustration. Jesus picked a better one in a vine and a branch. A branch that is separated from the vine is a dead branch. It has no source of life. It cannot attach itself to the rock and thrive and grow fruit. It is desperate for the vine every moment. The branch doesn't wake up, get a little bit of its roots into the vine, get charged up, and then say, okay, see you later tonight and then go about its day, thriving, bearing fruit. No. We're desperate for him every minute of the day to thrive, to produce that growing fruit. The initial act of believing in him is that phrase, coming to him, he that cometh to me, shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. Little, little King James for you there. So the, 
continued activity of faith is described as abiding. See it. And we, and we saw this, a taste of this in four, chapter 14, 19 through 21. Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Do you see the reconciliation and that now abiding in? In verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. There's, there's an ongoing relationship. Jesus abides in the Father. I am in the Father, he says. And then further assures them that their connection with him and connection with each other should not be dissolved. There's another layer to our utter need for Jesus all the time. It says, apart from him, we cannot bear fruit. In other words, we cannot do anything good or God-honoring. Look at the second part of verse 4 and verse 5. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Let us see this with clarity that we are utterly insufficient and desperate for the vine insufficient on our own, desperate for the vine. He's he's the only one who is sufficient. And so praise God that he's decided to graft us in and make us truly a part of the divine fellowship. For without him, nothing we would do would be good or God-honoring. The Bible tells us that everything mankind does apart from Christ is evil. Adam and Eve were separated from God in sin, Original sin dwells. Nothing in them apart from God honors God until new birth, until that restoration, that work of the Holy Spirit. Now understand, when you and I think, when you hear that statement, nothing, everything we do apart from Christ is evil, you think, man, that feels like a massive overstatement. You have to understand evil rightly. Evil, when you think of evil there, don't just think of thieves, molesters, or murderers. But anything that doesn't rightly honor God is sin. Is thereby evil. We must have a right view of ourselves apart from Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and new birth. Paul says in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Titus 1.15, to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? In Genesis 6, God's evaluation of mankind looks like this. The Lord saw all the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, were only evil continually. Because of that separation, because there's no spiritual life, Anything good, anything sharing, 
caring, horizontal, that's not for the glory of God, is self-serving, is sinful, is evil. This is why one of the most famous scriptures to speak of our best laid efforts being spiritually worth nothing, <laughs> utterly flawed and failed. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts, our best good acts, are like filthy rags. We can do lots of things without Jesus on the horizontal in this life, in this world. Lots of people want nothing to do with God, have nothing to do with Jesus, do a lot of good things on the horizontal. But spiritually, unto the glory of God, there, there, there is nothing in them that is good. That was what makes those efforts still evil, still sinful. We live and honor God in Christ. Our life, our best life is only in Christ. So Paul understood this in this very famous verse I continue to bring up because it continues to minister to me. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And, and this, this has just been really working on me lately. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That clarity shows that Paul gets the removal of that compartmentalization we're guilty of. He's speaking of that abiding. Everything I do, it's no longer I who live. I live in Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul really understood everything he did was in Christ. He was utterly dependent on Christ for everything how many of us depend on, draw from, look to Jesus just for the big things? The spiritual things. But don't really live in Christ in the little things. The daily things, the mundane things. And how much of that adds up to why we flounder and struggle in temptation like we do? I mean, consider... A few examples. What does it look like to be in Christ, to abide in Him as you go into the pantry? As you pick up the phone? You know that thing you do every day, a couple times a day, if not many times a day? What does it look like to be in Christ, abiding in Him, as you drive in and out of your neighborhood? As you run in, because you're already late, to buy that one thing at the grocery store. What does it mean to abide in Christ as you flip channels on the TV and on and on? 
My prayer has been today, Lord, bless us with an awakening. In that, we see how much we still check out from you to go about our days. Show us, Lord, how we really abide in you in every little thing. Look closer at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Fruit is mentioned eight times in this one chapter alone. I love fruit. There's a progression we see in the text from fruit to more fruitful to much fruit. The goal is not to be content with just fruit or even just more fruit. But in Christ, we should produce much fruit. For the glory of God. Understand that when the Holy Scriptures talk about fruit, it's always talking about character change. It's not just the result. It's not good looks. It's not the outer. It's not a great voice. It's not a honed skill. It is a growth and a blessing that comes from the core of who you are. Characteristics that a person puts forth that then become a blessing to others. It is the fruit or the character of the Spirit producing itself in our lives. It is a growing Christ-likeness, evidence of maturity and a God-honoring life. Think about a life that genuinely is a person who is more and more loving, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, good, faithful, self-controlled. This is what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm the key to that. I'm the true source for this kind of life. How can a selfish person become selfless? Abiding in me. I'll change you from the inside out. How can a whiner become a person filled with joy? Me. Abide in me. I'll change you from the inside out. How can a warrior become a person who is filled with real peace? (laughs) It is kind of funny when we try to put on superficial modifications. So you're like, oh, I'm really a warrior. 
I really don't want people to see that I'm a warrior. So I put on the mask of a peaceful person and they kind of like see the smile and then they just see you like all nutted up because you just really are worried. How can a mean person become truly kind and gentle? An addict becomes self-controlled. The person who needs to control everything to be done my way Become patient. Jesus is saying that happens when you abide in me. Let me change you from the inside out. The Holy Spirit will produce this fruit in you if you abide in him. Now our society wants to constantly pitch you with their means and methods. Oprah's Book of the Month Club self-help programs, man-made programs. These are just external modifications. They're manual turns of the steering wheel by which you will grow tired of holding the steering wheel in that direction and it will return to its autopilot. But in Christ, Christ who lives in you, you live in Him, He starts to produce a new you. Understand, a Christian does not grow fruit. Stop trying to be more loving. That is a manual, external modification. The growth that we need to focus on as Christians is not out. You don't grow fruit. The growth, the focus, the attention, the drive, the clean by a Christian, by the branch, needs to be in to Jesus. Because He, God, the Holy Spirit, changes you to produce the fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Josh. Our growth needs to be into Christ, dependent on Christ. Pastor Tim Keller once said this really well. He said, organic change through a new inner dynamic, which is Him, is what's needed, not just a mechanical compliance to an external action, trying to please him with a lifestyle that's you, that's your own work. And the illustration used is there's two ways you can try to bend metal. One is by force. You can take that metal and and maybe you put a little bit of bend in it. But what happens the moment you let go or you get tired? Or you can heat it and then permanently change it from the inside out. One is an external modification by your work alone. The other is an internal work application of another. That is what we need in Christ. Lasting, clinging to him, constant, abiding. He's changing you from the inside out. There's an epidemic problem in modern-day Christianity that is frustrating many people right out the door of their local church. 
because they've been taught or they've bought into the idea that the Christian life is one of external modifications. Sermons are often, in these places, list of pragmatic do's and don'ts. Ten ways to blah, blah, blah. And I'll sprinkle a little scripture in there to help prove my point. Surface level group time, or what people would call community or discipleship, is really fluffy discussions. We read something, what does everyone think about that? Let's pray. Good time. Good time, everyone. Good job. We must submit ourselves to Christ, die to ourselves, cling to him, submit ourselves to his word. It can't be just a superficial thing. He came to die for us so we could die to ourselves and live in Christ every day and mature in him. A famous author once said but years ago, Christ says, give me all. I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires, those which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. So understand, church, the branches, Christian growth is not about what you produce. It's always about a deeper, more intimate, abiding cling to Jesus. Maturity in, not out. So one of the beautiful ways we get this, how we do that is, and Jesus gives it to us here, the branches. The church. I am the vine, you are the branches. This is not spoken to you as an individual. It's spoken to us, the church, the redeemed. Why? Because Jesus has saved us from sin, which causes me to be really judgmental of you and really be irritated by you and not really want to be honest with you and authentic with you, so thereby I do a lot of life alone. But in Christ, those walls begin to break down. That community that he's restored us to begins to really happen. And one of the major overlooked themes of what Jesus is saying here, of how we remain, how we abide, is a constant walk with the other branches that God has put in our lives because of our adoption into his family, the Christian life is not one that you can do alone. You are saved into a family, into a community. And so the pragmatic, just very to-the-point question you must do business with today is who are you doing life with? And if you say, hey, these people I attend church with, I would argue that biblically that is not what this is saying. Who have you invited into your life to walk with you? This is someone, and let me really test it as you're trying to think of those people in your life. This is someone who doesn't have to ask you, how are you doing? Because they know. Because they're walking with you. They know you're Work life, home life, personal, quiet life, your marriage, your spouse. They know your struggles. They know your schedules. They know your temptations. They know your, your things you're working on, how you're growing. And their purpose is to constantly reorient your affections to the vine. 
all right, brother, I know like you're really pumped on the new iPhone 14. And it's, and I know, I know it's like attached to your head and it's going to be awesome and it's going to change everything. And you're so amped, but dude, Jesus is better. Don't let yourself drift into that, that job you're pursuing or hunting, that thing, whatever those things are, constantly reorienting us to Christ to abide in Him. When we have this kind of community, it really is the work that God saved us to do. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, We will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, Christ, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Each part does its work. See the body of Christ. See how intricately dependent and needed we all are for part of that, to mature into Christ, abide into him, mature. And when we have this kind of community, then we have an example in those that we are walking with. Encouragement along the way a fuller understanding of the gospel as I see it lived out in other people's lives, a support and prayer and help in my time of need, true accountability. I genuinely want to encourage you to really do business with this. There are many of you in the room who really don't have, if you're a man, a mature brother who really walks with you in this most intimate way. And you need that. If you're a woman in the room, a mature woman who will walk with you in this most intimate way. There's so many ways. We don't have to live in the same house. We don't have to talk on the phone every day. There's a lot of ways we do this well. We'd love to share that with you. If you want to grow this year, grow deeper into Jesus, then you need to break out of whatever is keeping you from deeper community. I know there's been seasons in our church and in the life of the church where groups and, and, and seed groups and life groups and community groups and, and all these different efforts and all these different whatever. The principle of what we're chasing down is still the same. And you cannot thrive in Christ without it. I, I, don't, I don't report to some like church governance whereby I get like a better quota or a better price if I have more of you in groups. I'm not doing it for that. I've got no, no, nothing like that. If I'm calling you, if I'm pressing on you, one of our shepherds, one of our leaders is pressing on you for this, it's out of love. It's saying, brother, sister, you're a branch that is disconnected. Take that next step. Let's work through whatever it is keeping you from it. Finally, look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel used the vine imagery to warn that if a vine failed to produce fruit, it it was good for nothing but a fire, Ezekiel 15. Jesus makes the same point here. The fire symbolizes judgment. It speaks of the uselessness of that which it consumes. Although the fire is a part of the symbolism here associated with the vine, it's, it's essential that we see again, essentially what we saw up front, another proof of those who are not of us. John's Gospel has made this point already. In John chapter 5, 29, those who have done good 
to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The fruit is an evidence of who you are, in Christ or not. Done good, proved to bear true fruit of the Spirit. Done evil, proved to produce nothing good, but only your works. Your declaration for Christ is not enough. There's an evidence of that life change that comes forth. We must see this clearly. We have much, church, to be thankful for as we prepare to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that the vine dresser and the vine even chose us, willed us to be included into that which is true and lasting life, that which we did not deserve. The Father, to see that the Father is patient and loving in His pruning, in His cleaning, in His sanctification of our lives for greater fruitfulness. That Jesus is faithful and calls us to remain and abide in Him every step of the way. Those who do not bear fruit, do not abide or continue, as John says later in 1 John 2.19, prove to not be one of us, still in their sins, still worthy of destruction. Christian, there is a huge and game-changing gift that we have been given. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Let us abide in Christ every day he gives us, every hour he entrusts to us, every moment he continues us for his purposes and glory, for our joy and for others' good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. It is a good word for us. The metaphor is simple and helpful and good for our souls. Lord, I just praise you, Lord, for for the ways in which you are um, stirring, the ways in which you are emboldening us. Let us be not just hearers today, but doers, that we follow up with the convictions the Holy Spirit's laid on our heart, pick up that phone to send an email, to put into action the steps that are needed, to really review our habits, our practices, and all those little things it would give us a heart that longs for you to walk with you and abide in you. Lord, that we would truly rejoice and, and really be full of worship and awe of you and what you've done. That that, that awe, that joy would, would move through us into those you put in our path. That many more who you intend to save would come believe, be reborn, grafted in the vine, be part of our family, maturing in Christ to your glory. God, you are good. You are a good God. We rejoice in you. We celebrate what you've done. Hear us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.